we learned last week that Jesus is, in fact, preeminent because he's created all things, he claims ownership over all things, and he controls all things from the largest of celestial stars to the smallest atom or particle or molecule uh, that is unseen by the human eye. Uh, Jesus controls it all. And as we continue in this series, we are learning that another aspect of his preeminence is found in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, The sacrifice that was given for you and I so that we might have abundant life here and eternal life in the life that is to come. And we're reminded that none of us are able to secure this. We were not worthy uh, to die the death for the sins of ourselves, let alone uh, humanity. And that the sacrifice that Jesus would give would be perfect. It would be without stain or blemish. And that sacrifice would be the key to man being reconciled back to God. And Paul is going to articulate this morning that this gift of grace uh, is a centerpiece of the gospel. And the reason why you and I have hope in Jesus Christ. But as we open our text this morning, we come to realize that Paul is concerned about the Colossian people. They've relegated the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to a secondary issue. They've become altogether bored with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some this morning here in our building today find themselves in the same predicament. You find yourself bored with the things of God. You've heard it over and over again. You've heard a preacher upon preacher open the word of God and proclaim the truths. And your only response has been there, done that. Well, the Colossi church was no different. They had become enamored not with the uh, thoughts of the Word of God and the truths of Scripture, but they had become enamored with the idea of wisdom. Where they had gotten this from was the Greeks. The Greeks and, of course, Aristotle and Platonic thought uh, was running rampant in the days of, of the Colossian church. And they sought out something that was far more flashy, and that was a pursuit for more knowledge and wisdom. They had grown tired of the flesh and blood gospel and sought to plumb the depths of an esoteric world of the spirit because that's where you would prove your spirituality. Because of this, their view of Jesus would be distorted. Their view of Christianity was more about uh, their minds than about the work and atoning death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So in our passage this morning, we're going to be given a reminder about what Christianity is all about. And if Christ is truly preeminent in all things, then he must be preeminent in the gospel that saves you and I from our sins. And we're going to notice that he's going to point back to Jesus over and over again. So with that as an introduction, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word, giving reverence to its public reading in his house, and we're going to look at Colossians 1, and we're going to start in verse 19 and go through verse 23. Here's what it says, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father God, we just come before you again, and we ask a simple prayer this morning. Show us your word. Show our sin and what it does to our relationship with you. And through your word, show us our Savior. That came and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who's never been introduced to this Jesus and his sacrifice, that today they would, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, see the truth and that the truth would set them free. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, he had a lot of names. He was called the Hitman, the Hatchet Man, the Godfather. He was the mastermind of all dirty tricks. You never wanted to cross him because he would be your greatest and worst enemy. He had a history of making mincemeat out of those who got in his way. He was so hell-bent on getting his way that he would often quip with others around that he would run his own grandmother over if she got in the way. And yet he was so slick, so slimy, that no accusation of wrongdoing would ever be pinned on him. Who was he? For those who are younger than 40 years of age, the name Chuck Colson may be a new name for you. For those who watched the Nixon presidency collapse in the mid-70s will remember the name Chuck Colson because he was the special counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate crisis and scandal. And Chuck Colson would have a day of reckoning when the Watergate scandal became public. It would be a day of reckoning where numerous hearings against Chuck and others of his uh, group of, of evil men would unveil private conversations that these men had. Where Chuck would be learned to be the mastermind of a scandal. Where through the tapes that were shared uh, all throughout the news media would be heard of him speaking vile words of anger. And revenge, words of hatred, words of death against his opponents. This type of leading and living would land him in prison. Chuck Colson would go to pay the penalty of his crimes, but he would never be able to pay the penalty of his sins. While in prison, this hardened man, this man who looked out for himself and no one else, would be given two books by a stranger. The two books he was given, the Holy Bible and the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Those two books and the Holy Spirit would take this filthy, rotten, power-hungry man and transform him that many who knew him before didn't think he was the same man at all. He went from being a man who sought to use his power against people who he hated, to be a man after God's own heart who would serve the Lord for God's purposes and plans. People were always about uh, power plays and all about pawns in this grand scheme. He was always looking for the important individual, the, the prominent individual, and God would work in his heart during his days in prison to share with him the vision and the heart to reach prisoners and orphans those who have no power or prominence. He would start ministries like prison fellowship, 
ministries that are pointed to by both Christians and non-Christians alike as being a reformation of our society, including those vilest of criminals. Up until his death in 2012, Chuck Colson was viewed as one of the most influential evangelicals and Americans. And when asked who most impacted his life, Chuck Colson said it was the Apostle Paul. Because he knew that Paul was a man just like him. A man with a vile reputation who encountered Jesus Christ. And Christ took a rebel at heart in Paul and redeemed him through and through. And Chuck Colson said if he could do that for the Apostle Paul, he can do it for Chuck Colson. He can do it for anyone. When we examine Paul's words this morning, I want you to remember Chuck Colson. But I also want you to remember that we too are rebellious at heart. That we too have tapes against us where every word we have spoken is before the eyes and ears of God. The thoughts, those things that we don't think anybody knows about go before an omniscient God. God knows our angry thoughts. God knows our lustful desires. God knows all of them. And God renders us as rebels. Rebels against Christ and His goodness. But more than that, we learn that Paul, through his words, reminds us of the love of Jesus Christ, who is willing to come and redeem all of us rebels and transform us by his grace. Now, why would he write all of this? You see, some of the Colossian people had gotten too big for their britches, spiritually speaking. They had begun to teach that to be holy, you had to have some secret knowledge only given to a select few. That if you really wanted to be holy, then you needed to adhere to all sorts of of man-made traditions, diets, and other things that would point to you as being holy and righteous. These false teachers were lording it over the people, telling them that apart from these man-made traditions and diets and, and thoughts of wisdom, if you did not have them, if you did not adhere to them, that you were incomplete, you were not totally saved. Paul says, don't buy into this garbage. Trust Jesus, bask in his grace and forgiveness of sins. And no matter how rebellious, rebellious you've been, there is redemption found at the foot of the cross. So notice Paul wants to address this issue in Colossae, and he does so uh, under three headings this morning. Notice, first of all, the rebellion of humanity. The rebellion of humanity. Notice in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, you were doing evil deeds. Let's stop there for a moment. In our text last week, Paul has just examined Jesus Christ. And he has pronounced upon Jesus that he is preeminent in all things. He's looked at all the things that Jesus has done, and he says Jesus is number one. Jesus is the most powerful, the most magnificent, the most awe-inspiring creator God, equal with the Father in heaven. He is to be worshipped and praised. 
But notice Paul now turns right away from Jesus Christ. He turns his gaze upon us, humanity, and and in a similar examination, he looks over us, he, he looks at our actions, he looks at our thoughts, he looks at how we relate to one another, and notice what he comes up with a conclusion. Not that we are preeminent, but that we are a pitiful, rebellious people. I tell you, these words are never welcome in our day, whether in society or even these days within a church. Humanity loves to pronounce upon ourselves our evolution as a species and our advances that we believe come from the human mind that allow for technological advances. We're getting better, they say, not worse. But then I'm always awestruck with some of the events that I see week in and week out, even looking back at this week, when the dumbfounded press asked the most stupid of questions, when two brothers run around Paris killing innocent individuals in the name of a false god, they say, why would someone do this? And they go and they bring in psychologists and they bring in uh, criminologists who, who know the hearts and minds of, of criminals. They say it's a bad upbringing. Or maybe it's because they watched some bad cartoons growing up. Or, or maybe it's that they were, they, they were not given opportunities. And they begin to talk about that. And then we can go through our newspapers and we ask the question, why is it that moms kill their babies? Why is it that husbands cheat on their wives? Why is it that children rebel against their parents? And we could go on and and look at how our news is filled with events of crimes and all of that. And we can say, well, they're just a few bad eggs in the lot. Or we can understand what Paul is saying. And Paul addresses for us that instead of looking at the hypothesis of bad upbringing or other societal influences, Paul says that our sin... And this issue that we're facing, the reason why we live the way we do and hurt others and and, and fight and wage war against others runs much deeper than that. He says our problem isn't with ourselves and it isn't with others. Notice in the context, our problem is with God. We have failed God. And we have sinned against this God. And when you go against, listen, the one who created you, Your world will never be the right way. Your life will never be lived in the way that it was intended to. You and I have rebelled against God and our lives are filled with great pain and agony at times as a result. But where did this come from? From birth, you and I traded the truth of God, the preeminent one, for a lie. And we've sought to please self. Instead of the Savior. So what happens? Paul, notice he says, the first thing that comes is it means we're alienated from God. After addressing the total unity of the Son with the Father, their equality, he then moves to go to the other side of the spectrum. So here you over here, you have Jesus, and he's equal with the Father. He's at every same level in total fellowship. And Paul seems to create a contrast. As close as Jesus is to the Father, on the other side of the spectrum, we are as far away from God as we could ever be. 
So there's no, there's no space between the Father and the Son in, in their essence and in their fellowship. But what he says about humanity is we are alienated, that we're nowhere near God in any way, shape, or form. That word alienated, notice that word, it means to be estranged from, foreign, not belonging to the same country, not allied, but adverse to. This word is only used three times in the New Testament. And in the, in the scriptures, the other times, it, it literally is translated excluded from God. Growing up, all of us remember, I believe, at some time or another, the idea of being grounded, right? I do. Remember it a lot. Amanda still does it every once in a while. You know the time that we break a rule and mom or dad would say, you know what, go to your room, you're, you're grounded. I'm going to, as a parent, keep you from the things that I say will bring you joy or happiness or satisfaction. You have now been alienated from those things and you've been put in a place that seemingly is no fun. I remember my mom at an early age used to go in our room and, and seek out the things that would look fun to a young boy and take them out and her hands would be full. And I'd tell her, that's not fun, that's not fun, why are you taking that out? But we've been grounded. Put that into the spiritual sense, and that's what Paul is talking about. But here's the problem. This alienation doesn't happen for a short time out. It doesn't happen for an afternoon. It doesn't happen for a couple days. But seemingly this time out is a lifetime grounding, a lifetime ban. For those who are baseball fans, you, you remember uh, the story of Pete Rose. Pete Rose, while being a manager of a major league baseball team, gambled on games of baseball. That was the unpardonable sin. And he would be banned, banned, alienated, estranged from baseball. A lifetime ban. We're not even going to think about it. It's done. You'll never be involved. He should be in the Hall of Fame based on his stats. And they say, you'll never touch the Hall of Fame. You have been alienated from the sport that you absolutely love. This is what Paul is talking about. You and I have been alienated from God. We'll never get close to God on our own because of our sin. Both Adam and Eve recognized this. When, when they sinned and God brought his judgment, what does God do? He alienates them from the Garden of Eden. You're not going back. Even if you want to, even if you say, I'm sorry, the gates are going to close. I'm going to put an angel there to guard its entrance. You will never see those days again. That is what it means. And that is the great reason why our society is the way it is. Why do men fight against women? Why do children fight against their parents? Why do nations war against one another? The great answer is, is because we are alienated from our God. And when we are alienated from our God, we will fight against one another. And left to our own devices, we're going to seek to do all that we can to make something of this life, but it will never come to fruition. So notice what he says then. You're alienated, you're separated from God. Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, you're also hostile in your mind. And so there we see that we're against God and his ways. We're against God and his ways. Not only are we separated, but we're angry with him. The word hostile literally means enemy. 
We are enemies of God. That's not the first time that Paul would share that. It shared numerous times in his letters to other churches. And what it literally means is when we are hostile, we are one who is antagonistic to God. We seek to injure the name and reputation of God. We seem to seek to overthrow God, to confound him, to set him off, to take him off his throne and to place ourselves there. We are in a perpetual season seeking out how to take him out. I was visiting with my wife Amanda in, in Charleston, South Carolina, the Citadel. And we went into the bookstore, and the Citadel, of course, is a military academy, raising up the next group of military leaders. And, and in the middle of the bookstore, I was walking through looking, trying to ask the question, what are our future generals reading, right? You know, is it different than what I'm reading? I want to know what these bright men and women are reading and how they will lead the armies of the next generation. And, and, and one of the books I saw was How to Be a Strong Military Leader, big, thick book. And I was like, ah, that's the kind of book I would, exam- I would think would be in a military bookstore. And right next to it, it had, I kid you not, I took a picture, if you don't believe me, how to stage a successful coup. Okay, some of you may not know what a coup is. How to take out the leader of your country. That's kind of scary, isn't it? You guys aren't awake this morning, obviously, or the joke fell on, on some deaf ears, but... We read those two books and we say, how can I make myself a successful person? And the way we do it is we read the secondary book, How to Stage a Coup Against God. How to get him out of our lives. How to get him away from us, his hands off of our lives, so that we can do what we want to do. Now notice this word that is translated hostile is used almost three dozen times in the scripture. And, and many times it is defined as enemy. And I want you to know that, that there's an individual who is used, in this word is used in noun form to speak against. It's the devil. So when we are said that we are hostile in mind, the same word that God uses to speak of his adversary, the devil, he speaks of us in our unrepentant state. He would tell the Romans and the Ephesians the same truth. We are enemies of God. But Paul shares with the Colossians something that helps paint a picture about the current state of the Colossian church. And Paul says that they were hostile. Notice they were enemies of God. Notice in their minds. If you underline or circle, that's an important thing. Because that word mind refers to the use of higher reasoning with regards to important truths. Now, Colossians in this day had been infiltrated by a group of people called the Gnostics. You'll see that if you ever watch a Discovery Channel um, series on the Bible, you'll hear about Gnostic Gospels. These are Gospels that are written by people who, uh, who, who were impacted by, again, Greek thoughts. And they began to create a syncretism, a a combining of Greek thought and biblical truth about Jesus. And they made up their own ideas about Jesus. And Colossians was dealing with this. And it had been infiltrated by people who were leading others astray by the use of persuasive and intellectual arguments. Paul says, for those who have put their faith and trust in their minds, beware, your mind is not as pure as you think. In fact, your mind is what is against God and the things of God. 
It's a tragedy for us to see men who are created in the image of God use their minds actively against Him. There was a time when all of us who are now believers were alienated from God. We didn't have any use for God. We didn't take Him into our thinking or into our plans. We did not consider God to be important. We started and ended each day without a thought about Him. We went about with our own plans, living for ourselves and doing what we felt like doing, never giving any inkling or or desire to ask God what he may think about our lives. Or if we did think of him, we would recognize or regard him as some remote being. But we never expected anything from him. We cut him out of our thinking, even though he was the very sustenance of our lives. We ended up, as Paul describes, being enemies of God, hostile towards him. That is, we wanted nothing to do with him. Do you remember how that felt? Do you remember how you used to make decisions in that way? The way we avoided God? The way we thought that he might interfere with our plans or desires? That he was some cosmic killjoy out to make us live uneventful and unhappy lives? Where we were not open to him in any degree whatsoever? We were enemies of God. And some of you today, while professing a faith in Jesus Christ, look at God and Christ in this way. Stay out of my way. I went to church. Now get off my back. I'm going to do my own thing. Notice what this will lead to, Paul says. We'll be active in sin. Notice the text says, doing evil deeds. Notice that this sin is found with a verb, doing. That's important. Again, that's, these words are important in what Paul is describing. We didn't do them in the past. It's not something that we've ceased to do. No, in our sinful state, we are continually, at all times, living lives of sin. The picture here is that because you and I are alienated from God, because we are hostile in our minds, we will do the only thing that comes naturally to us, and that is sin. Literally in the text, we are continually in evil. Evil is the air that we breathe in and breathe out. Evil is the only thing that matters in in how we conduct our lives and work. All our thoughts, all our words, all our deeds are marinated, if you will, in in the great sauce of evil. What an ugly picture Paul shares with us. Let me bring in a broader picture of this in the first chapter of Colossians. All Paul has just shared with us last week is that Jesus is preeminent. And yet in our sinful state, we yell with one unified voice, hogwash. And even if it is true, it'll be a cold day in hell before I ever bow the knee to him. That is where you and I were before Christ met us. Let me ask you this morning, does that describe you today? Paul is very pointed in this when he addresses this subject. He doesn't say, uh, some of you might think this way or might act this way, or there's a few There's always a couple bad eggs in the batch, so maybe there's a couple of you who who act this way. No, he points with his proverbial apostle finger, you, and he points to me. And if you think that Paul is holier than thou, Paul reminds us that like Chuck Colson, like you and me, he too was a redeemed rebel of God. 
He said he was the worst of all sinners. And he too recognizes that when he writes these words, it is a biography about the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, before that Damascus Road encounter with Jesus. Now notice, you may say, well Tim, that may be true of me sometimes, but not all the times. Paul makes it clear in the context of what we've seen that there is no in-between with regards to being halfway alienated from God and then being in fellowship with him. Either, listen, Jesus is preeminent in your life, he's above all things, he controls all of you, or he doesn't control any of you. There's no in-between. You can't say Jesus is preeminent on Sunday, but he's not on Monday. He either has all of you or none of you. Well, what would God do if we didn't make Christ preeminent? The just answer is that some of us, or that all of us, would have to pay the full penalty of our sin. But that's not what he says. Notice, instead of giving us what we deserve, Jesus shows his preeminence in his response to rebels like you and I. Notice, Paul reminds us that though we were hostile to God, instead of judgment... Paul reminds us that it isn't judgment that Jesus brings, but notice it's the reconciliation he brings. Notice verse 20. It says, And through him he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul says that Jesus came not to judge the world or condemn the world, but to bring reconciliation. This reconciliation is seen both in the visible realm and the invisible. The idea here is that Jesus is in a perpetual peace mission, bringing restoration back to the cosmos that has been somehow shoved out of whack by sin in ways we don't even know. But notice more specifically in verse 22, that Jesus has taken that which is totally estranged from God and brought peace back to our relationship. Notice what he says in verse 22. He says, And now he is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The idea here is that Jesus is reconciling you and I, and he's doing it for a couple different reasons. Number one... This makes Jesus preeminent because we see from the text that if Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things seen and unseen, that he has, listen, bigger things to worry about than you and I. But because of his love, he has taken notice of you and me. Amidst his great task of seeing to it that that the stars hold in place, that that the cosmos does not collapse in some uh, black hole or abyss, while God is holding all those things together, Jesus noticed you and I. And he noticed us not because we had something of value to bring, but because he saw us in our frail in sinful states. Who is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist says. While Jesus holds the universe together, he's more powerful and strong that he can turn away from that and put his attention on you. And look at you in your sin 
and say, I need to do something for them. Notice he does this while you and I are set against him in every way. What's the reason for this? The love of God. The love of God. Now before you think that you somehow came halfway to meet God, that that he saw a spark of your love and that's why Jesus was sent to die for you, Notice that we did not come halfway. We were totally alienated from God. We weren't taking steps towards God. We were taking steps away from God. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus said, I'm going to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus came after us. And he redeemed us from our sinful state. The songwriter put it this way when speaking about the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. It is the saints' and angels' song. Have you experienced the love of God? The love of God that comes and reconciles you, an enemy of God, to be a part of the family of God. Well, how... How do we understand this? Notice Paul answers two questions for us. The way he does it or the way he reconciles. Verse 22, how does Christ make sinners clean? How does he bring peace to our war with God? How does he make enemies into family members? Notice the text says he does it by his body of flesh through his death by making peace by his blood. Now to a casual reader, You'll run right by it, and you'll make no sense of the context of what's taking place. But for the Colossian Christians, this is huge. What Paul says is, amidst a group of false teachers who say that it's about the spirit, it's about the the esoteric ideas of the mind, Paul says that the implications of our redemption are found in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. First of all, it's a reminder that Jesus loved us so much that he came to earth to live among us and relate to us. Now notice, Jesus did not do this for the angels, the third of angels that fell from heaven. Before creation was made, when the rebellion in heaven took place, Jesus did not look at them in their helpless estate and say, I will go and become an angel, be one of them, so I can redeem them back to myself. Jesus doesn't do that. And you must wonder what the angels were thinking when when Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were having a relationship that the angels once knew to be true for themselves. And and then they see Adam and Eve talking and walking with with God, uh, their God and their, their Savior and Lord. And as they're walking and talking with God, something terrible takes place. Adam and Eve, just like the angels did before, they rebel against God. And I wonder if the angels said, wait a minute, they're in trouble. Remember what happened when that third of the angels did what they did when they followed Lucifer? 
The devil in the fall, they were consigned to a place of judgment. They were consigned to a place of hell where they would be in torments, where they would live in bondage. And then God does the unthinkable. Instead of doing what he did to the angels, he takes an animal and he crushes it. And he takes its skin and he wraps the man and woman so their shame would not be seen anymore and that their sin would be covered. And then he announces to all the world that there would be one who would come who would crush the devil's head and redeem a people unto himself. Have you ever thought that your redemption is the thought of angels? That they're not sitting there going, why in the world would God redeem Timbadol and not one of our own? What grace? Well, how would he do it? He would become one of us so that we could be able to see him and, and he could be at our level and we could experience him and we could see that he's a man who endured all sorts of temptations and all sorts of turmoil and yet live without sin. But notice Paul explains that there's another implication and that is that, that when he says all of this about flesh, to die our death, it reminds us that blood had to be shed. We were the ones who were estranged from God, therefore it would be our blood. But Jesus decided, because of his love for us, that it would be him who would go to the cross. It would be he who would, who would pay our penalty for sin and death. Even though we were the ones who were estranged and alienated from God, it would be Jesus who had total fellowship with the Father, who would go to the cross and who would see his Father turn away as he poured out his anger on his one and only son. Now notice, Paul makes all of this reference to flesh and blood for a couple reasons. Why? Because the false teachers had brought into question whether or not Jesus was truly a human being. Well, there were some, as he addressed last week, that, uh, that detracted from Jesus being uh, same with the Father. There were others who were teaching that it wasn't that Jesus wasn't equal with the Father, but that in fact he had not come in the body. That he had not come to be a human like one of us. This teaching was called docetism. And it was big in the early church. In fact, in, in 2 John, if you want to turn there for a moment, go to the end of your Bible before the book of Revelation. A short epistle called 2 John is there. And this one chapter book gives us some understanding of what was going on in the false teaching that was being propagated that no doubt had infiltrated the Colossian church. In 2 John, if you have your Bible, page 1025, page 1025, it tells us in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 7, for many deceivers have gone into the world... Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ, notice, in the flesh. Such a one as a deceiver and the Antichrist. So watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So there were those that were teaching that Jesus had not come in the flesh. So here's how the teaching would go. Jesus was a man. They would say Jesus was a first century man, a man from Galilee, 
who was appointed by God because of his faithfulness to fill him at some point. Well, when did the Christ, if you will, fill the man Jesus? It happened at Jesus' baptism. Remember where Jesus comes out of the water and the Father says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And docetism said that that's when Christ, the deity, entered into Jesus, the man. And so Jesus would then go, and even though he was a human being, he wasn't the God-man. They, they, they relegated that doctrine to being something not worthwhile. And so Jesus would go, and he was filled with this, if you will, where he was enlightened, and he, he had a wisdom of God that, that no others had had, something that we should pursue. And when he went to the cross, the Spirit would leave him. Before he would die. Well, where would they get that? Well, the scripture says that before he took his last breath, he committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. And so what docetism said is that same spirit that entered Jesus at his baptism left him before he died. And so when Jesus died on the cross, it was the carcass of the Jesus, the man, not the God-man. And so they would say that Jesus did not die in the flesh. God did not die in the flesh for us. And so as a result, we have a spirit who died on our behalf, or I'm sorry, a man who died on our behalf, not the one and only Son of God. You say, well, why don't they address this in the Bible if it was such a big thing? Uh, notice in your Bible, write these passages down for the sake of time. The Apostle John, in his first epistle to the people, say, says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have noticed what he says, listen to the action words, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testified to it and proclaimed you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ the apostle john says we've touched the guy we saw him we saw him die on the cross i was there he says i saw him after when he came into the upper room he showed us his hands he showed us his feet we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only crucified, dead, and buried, and resurrected Son of God. 1 Peter 3.18 reminds us of this truth. Peter, again, another apostle of Jesus Christ, says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but making us alive in the spirits. You see, you and I have redemption through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, why does this matter? Because he was put to death in the flesh so that you and I, with all of our sins in the flesh, might be redeemed. But also recognize that the second person of the Trinity, fully God, went to the cross and it covers the spiritual need that we have. It's not just a flesh problem we have, it's a spiritual problem we have. And so we can rest, be rest assured whatever sins we have committed in the flesh or in the spirit or any mixture of the two have been covered from every vantage point by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can say with great confidence that what the Son has set free is free indeed. 
So notice next, why does he do it? Why does he reconcile us? All of this is done for a reason. Notice in the text, it is done in Colossians 1, so that we may be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That word present, present, I'm sorry, the word present is the idea of us standing before the righteous Father in heaven. That there's a day, Paul speaks about in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, a day where we will stand, both believers and non-believers alike, will stand before the righteous judge, our heavenly Father. That word present is a military term where the soldier would present themselves to their drill sergeant, if you will. And they would examine the drill sergeant, would every nook and cranny, looking for a stain, looking for a wrinkle, looking for a misplaced crease, using his white gloves to seek out any dirt, even the smallest trace of dust, <clears throat> because he wanted those in his division to be up, upright and blameless. But here's the truth. While it may be difficult to make a drill sergeant happy from a human perspective, drill sergeants can be fooled. But notice that this presentation will be before, listen, the omniscient, the all-knowing God of the universe. Who knows everything about you, knows everything you've said, everything you've done, all of it. Listen, we don't have a chance in that inspection apart from Christ. But because of him and, and with him, you and I stand before the omniscient God. And God will look us over. And he will be looking for sin. And think of all the multitudes of sins that you and I have committed, both in deed and in thought, both in word. And he's going to look and he's going to sit there and say, I've examined you and you're clean. You're righteous. You're above reproach. God will not even be able to bring an accusation against us in our sin because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's why John Newton said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. These are the words that struck to the core of the Apostle Paul. They strike to the, uh, the, the heart of Chuck Colson. But how about you? Do you recognize you're a former rebellion? Do you recognize that you need reconciliation? How do you know if you've received this reconciliation? The answer is found in what redeemed rebels are to do once they've received grace. One who truly understands what he has gained in Christ will seek to live for him. And Paul says that there's a responsibility. That's the third point this morning. The responsibility of all redeemed rebels. Notice in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You can't take the promises of reconciliation and continue in sin. You can't say in one breath that Jesus is number one in your life and then go on living for yourself. You can't allow part of your life to die to sin while the other part parties in it. All of it has to die. Paul's going to address this in Colossians chapter 3. Put to death all that is involved with your earthly nature. One who is redeemed puts on the things of Christ. But for in order to that to happen, 
But what Paul says is there's a loyalty that needs to come by those who have been redeemed. And what's our loyalty to? To the preeminent one, to Jesus Christ. Well, how do we become loyal? Number one, we become loyal to the death of Christ. You may ask, how does one become loyal to the death of Christ? First, it means understanding that just as Christ died so that others may live, that we too are called to lay down our lives for Christ. Maybe not on a physical cross, but we are to live a life that suffers for the glory of God, that seeks to serve others as we serve Christ. It means laying down our own lives, dying to self, and taking up our cross daily. It means putting to death anything that seeks to compete with God, whether it's possessions or people or pleasure or prestige. All of it must die so that Christ may have preeminence in all that we do. Number two, it involves a loyalty to the demands of Christ. Christ has faithfully fulfilled his ministry and his work. Now Christ demands you and I do the same. But what does that look like? Notice in the text, it begins by continuing in the faith. What faith? The faith that you have in Christ, that his death is the only payment for your sin, that you cannot do it without him. Don't be shaken from that. Don't don't, uh, become unstable. But remain steadfast in this confidence that Jesus is all that he says he is and all that he says he has done, no matter what popular opinion says, no matter what your circumstances that come your way may dictate to you, remember that it is only through Jesus that you may have the abundant life. Number three, the doctrines of Christ. Paul has spent the last two weeks strengthening our understanding on who Jesus is and why he's preeminent. He's cautioned us to be careful of false teachers and to pursue true knowledge that is found in Jesus Christ. So, you and I must seek to know with full assurance that we are in the right faith. Notice the definite article uh, under each of these things. Continue in the faith. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It's not any hope. It's not any gospel. It isn't any faith. It is one definite faith. The faith of Jesus Christ who is equal with God. Who is God himself. Who came and put on flesh. Made his dwelling among us. Who lived a perfect life. That he might redeem those who are lost. Through his death, burial, and resurrection in the flesh. That is the gospel. That is what saves sinners. Not supernatural or esoteric thoughts or ideas. Not you doing the right things for a certain period of time. You and I don't have a chance. We are alienated from God and we need a Savior. And Jesus Christ came to seek and to save you and I who were lost. Upon the death of Chuck Colson... There were many who looked with skepticism about his conversion. That's what we do, don't we? When someone really, really bad says they've come to know Jesus, they thought it was all a crock. And yet, upon his death in 2012, Russell Moore penned these words in Christianity Today, and it's a great way for us to close this message. Chuck Colson had every reason to be ashamed. Virtually every word he spoke in the Nixon White House was recorded and transcribed, laid open for everyone from the House Judiciary Committee to his next-door neighbors to see. His own words proved him to be a ruthless, manipulative, and even craven human being. But remember, all of our words have been transcribed. 
The Bible tells us this. They are embedded in our conscience that points us to a judgment day in which every idle word and thought will be revealed where all that we have done is laid bare. Like Nixon and his cronies, we want to obstruct that justice. If we could only erase the tapes and sear our consciences, we reason, everything will be okay. In trying to win the campaign of our own attempts at self-justification, we rebelled against a higher authority than that of the United States Constitution. We have broken into temples more sacred than the Watergate Hotel. When you read those who smirk and dismiss Chuck Colson's conversion, the Chuck Colson life, don't get angry. Don't get outraged. Read a subtext that belongs to us all. The fear that the criminal conspiracy that we've all been a part of will one day be exposed. And just and it just can't be forgiven. Read the un- undercurrent of those who find that it hard to believe that one uh, cannot be just pardoned, but born again. That indeed is hard to believe. But an empty grave in Jerusalem is all we have on which to base that claim. A claim that speaks louder than our own accusing hearts. I have to believe that when Chuck Colson opened his eyes in the moment after his death, that he didn't hear anything about break-ins, dirty tricks, or guilty consciences. I have to believe when Mr. Colson came to heaven, he heard a Galilean voice saying, I was in prison and you visited me. I have to believe that when he stood before his creator, he stood with a new record, a new life transcript, one that belonged not to himself, but to a Judean day laborer who is now the ruler of the cosmos. And in that Lamb's book of life, there are no 18-minute gaps. What good news for guilty consciences. What good news for recovering hatchet men and women alike. What great news for people like you and me. Let's pray. Father God, show us our sin this morning. Show us that sin, because apart from that sin, I'm sorry, apart from you, that sin will reign. And we will be lost. Lord, I'm thankful that your word speaks truth about who we are. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't try to make it sound nicer than it really is. It tells us the truth. Let us place ourselves under that word this morning and examine our own hearts and ask the question, are we truly the rebel that you say that we are? But Lord, I pray that we won't look to the left or to the right, the individual next to us, to examine whether we're as bad as they are, but we will look to your perfection and see that we are truly rebels. But Lord, the great gospel is good news, and we recognize and have heard this morning that your good news is that you came to reconcile us back to yourself. That's why we praise you. That's why we worship your name. That's why Jesus is preeminent over all things. Because he did what no one else could do. And he did it even though we were in our sins. He demonstrated that love. And so Lord, I pray today that each of us would take stock of our own lives. And ask the question, number one, have we bowed the knee to the preeminent one, Jesus Christ? And if we haven't, that today before anyone would leave this place... They would seek out the fullness of the gospel and bow the knee to you, Jesus, asking for you to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But Lord, also I pray for those, the multitude of those that are here who have done that already, 
And Lord, I pray that this passage would enlighten their hearts in such a way that they would seek in all things to make you preeminent. That they would confess the things, the sins that so easily entangle us. And that they would be made right knowing that you uh, forgive those who confess their sins. You're faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for your word this morning, Lord. Now, lead us out into a world that says you're not number one. And let us be a bright and shining light to the world radiating your glory and your name for your sake now and forever. Dismiss us now in peace, Lord, we pray, into the fellowship of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.